Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Second Peter 1, uh, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of this majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God, from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully conformed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if you're uh, perusing uh, any social media, you'll come across a random ad that's like 21 life hacks that will absolutely change your life. Y'all are nodding because you're familiar with this, right? And if you're gullible, you'll go into it because you saw the picture and you'll think, that didn't change my life. That's just a, like at best, that life hack might declutter your desk a little bit, right? Bold statements, life hacks, simple tricks, simple words to change your life. Peter this morning gives us a simple word by which he wants believers to endure. He gives us a simple word to help us run the race. He gives us a simple word that will literally change your life. And this simple word is what God will use, one of the means God will use to bring about 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's one of his means that he will transform us into the image of Jesus. So for those of you who weren't here with us last week, we looked at Mark chapter 9. We talked about Jesus' transfiguration, uh, where the Father revealed Jesus' glory, Jesus' authority to the disciples. And this transfiguration was a little glimpse of the glory of Jesus that would radiate for all eternity. Our passage this morning is written to Christians who live in this in-between time, the time in between Jesus being transfigured and his glory shining in Mark 9, and the time where his glory will radiate on all of creation in fullness in the new creation. So they live in this in-between times. It's the same time that we live in, where Jesus' kingdom has already been inaugurated, his kingdom has already begun. It's already been established in the hearts of men, but we can all attest because of the, the corruption of this world, because of the hardness of hearts, because of sin, that his kingdom hasn't come in fullness yet. There's, there's more to be experienced. There's more of this kingdom to be established. We experience... God's goodness, life, and fellowship with him. We experience the church. We experience promises of God as a part of his kingdom now. But we wait for it to come in fullness when he'll eradicate all darkness. When he'll get rid of all sin. When he'll get rid of any of the effects or sorrow, sadness that are associated with sin. But in this last time, there's still darkness. There are still false teachers. They're still suffering. At the time of this letter, 2 Peter, uh, there are false teachers going around denying that Jesus was actually going to come back. Right? A core tenet of the gospel is that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back to bring judgment. He's going to come back to bring salvation. And these folks were spreading lies about Jesus. 
They were spreading lies about his resurrection, his coming, and the eternal reward that believers inherit. So like a good shepherd, Peter is concerned for the well-being of his audience. He's concerned for their, for their endurance, sort of like a parent. Uh, you may see them or you may be the parent who you're going to take your child out in public. And before you go out in public, you have to get down on their level and whisper very quietly and very gently, you remember how to behave in public. You represent me, right? It's not a new revelation to them. It's not something that they say, oh, dad, like, I never knew this. Thank you. No, it's something they've heard, something you're just gently reminding so they know how to stay on the path. So what's the path Peter wants for us to stay on this morning? He wants, us, he wants to remind us of the eternal kingdom of our Lord. He wants to remind them that entrance is through knowing Jesus and that those who know Jesus will bear fruit in the Christian life. Every Christian has the same reward. Every Christian has the kingdom of God as his or her reward. But how do we endure this difficult time? How do we endure this time between? Well, Peter tells us in this word, the main point that Peter's trying to get across is pay attention to God's word if you're going to endure. Pay attention to the prophetic word. So just like Peter's audience needed this word of reminder to pay attention We also, being plagued with sin, living in this dark time, need God's word if we are going to endure. So I want us, as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to come to his word. I want us to see clearly that God's word is sufficient, that God's word is powerful, that God's word is enlightening to help us endure. So as we look through this text, we'll see, we'll highlight two points of grammar that uh, Peter, Peter uses. He, he calls us to action and he gives us a purpose, right? So the two points of grammar that we're going to look at, we're going to first look at Peter's grounds, the grounding for Peter's statement. That'll be our first point. And the second will be Peter's main clause, Peter's main clause. Now, some of y'all started smiling when I said grammar, and some of y'all probably had some frustrating flashbacks. Uh, I'm more of the frustrating flashback person, and uh, I learned more grammar in one semester of college than I remembered from all of my grade school. So, when I say grounds, uh, that might be foreign to some of y'all. When I say the word grounds, what I'm meaning is the reason behind a statement, so Peter's giving the reason behind his main point. It's like the why behind what he's saying, what he's commanding. So hearing the dog bark outside and going berserk is the reason, is the grounds you bring him inside. Your boss's authority is the grounds by which you obey him. You, you submit to him. You do what he asks you. And you not doing those things is the grounds by which he can fire you. Peter's main point is that we should pay attention to the word and his grounds is that we have a certain word of God and we have the certain word of Jesus' second coming. The grounds is Jesus' certain second coming. We can be confident in the reliability of God's word as we wait for Jesus to come back. Peter says in verse 16, that the message they're declaring is the message of the power and of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message that he's proclaiming, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have these two words, power and coming, and most commentators would say we should put those together. Not like they're two separate things, like Jesus' power and then his coming. It's his powerful coming. He's coming in power. So it would be like we read, when, he, when we made known to you our Lord Jesus' powerful coming. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he ascended into heaven. This is what we read at the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Uh, he ascends into heaven, and it says, while they were looking up, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. But Jesus had promised to all of his disciples that his kingdom, 
He promised that he would establish his kingdom where all things would be right in the world, where he would undo the curse of the fall, where he would undo everything that Adam brought in with the curse and sin. He would undo it. But you can imagine it'd be pretty unnerving to be an apostle and see Jesus, the risen Lord, ascending and going away, right? Can you imagine yourself in that situation? Like, I thought that the kingdom was coming. Well, right after we read that in Acts, we read that two men appeared in robes and they said, why do you stand looking to the heaven? This Jesus is going to come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. This is testified and prophesied in the Gospels. Jesus says he's coming back. In John chapter 14, he tells his disciples, I'm going away to my father's house where I'm going to prepare a room for you, but don't lose heart. I'm going to come back and bring you to that room. I'm going to come back to bring you with us, with me. Yet, in Peter's day, there were many who denied that Jesus was actually going to come back. False teachers crept into the church, denying the physical return of Jesus. They denied the eternal kingdom of God. They denied the reward that every believer is going to inherit. Like Eastern religions that believe in a cyclical time, it's just time is going to continue on and people are just going to continue. These false teachers thought the same thing. Read that in chapter 3, if you just flip one page... Chapter 3, verse 4 says, They will say, the false prophets, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from, uh, from the beginning of creation. So life is just going to continue on. It's just going to continue on. Life goes on and on. If their claims were true, If there was no second coming of Jesus, there's no judgment for sin, right? There's no no consequence for disobedience. So what's that mean? If there's no judgment for sin, why do we live any different? Why don't we just go, why don't we just go steal when, when we really want that thing someone has? Why don't we lie when it benefits us? Why don't we just go sleep around when, when we'd rather If there's no judgment for sin, if there's no second coming where all things will be exposed, there's no motivation to live godly lives. And if there's no second coming, there's no promise of full salvation for God's people. Right? We have have Jesus who's risen, and that's a guarantee of our salvation. But if he doesn't come back, if he doesn't come back, there's no grounds for our hope. There's nothing to look forward to. We have no hope of absolute freedom from evil, absolute freedom from suffering. The future kingdom, the future kingdom where we will behold his glory is our only hope for suffering in difficult times. You need to see this, that there's a, there's a promise of a new city, a coming kingdom where there will be no more tears. There will be no more death, no more pain. There will be no more division between families. There will be no division between God's people. There will be no loneliness. There will be no lack of joy. All things will be new. All things will be life as it should be with God. The relationship that believers have with God will be fully realized. The second coming of Jesus brings glorious blessing to all those who believe in him, all those who have faith in him. His second coming brings glorious blessing. But these false teachers denied it. Much like it's easy to not think about it in our lives, or much like it might be scoffed or mocked in our culture, these false teachers denied the actual coming of Jesus, which leaves us without hope. So Peter writes, verse 16, Peter writes to remind them of the certainty of Jesus' powerful coming. And how does he do this? Well, he, he does this by giving two witnesses, right? So if I have subpoints, these are my subpoints. Two witnesses here. Now, the first witness 
The first witness is the eyewitness of the apostles. Notice in verse 16, 2 Peter 1, verse 16, he says, we did not follow any cleverly devised myths when we made known this to you, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, he says we, and that's Peter saying we as in the apostles. We as in those who have made known this message to you. The apostles were the ones who were delivering God's message to the church. And Brian's preached on this before. So I'd encourage you, if you're curious, to jump back into those uh, sermons through 1 Corinthians. Uh, but the apostles carried very specific authoritative instruction for the church. Right? The New Testament church understood that to disobey or diso- disbelieve the apostles was to disobey or disbelieve the Lord. Right? So Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, commends them because they received the apostles' word, not as the words of man, but as the word of God, he says in 1 Thessalonians. The the Thessalonians received the apostles' word, not just as man's word, but as God's word. So the apostles had this message to speak authoritatively to the church in this in-between time. And this message was no myth. It was something they witnessed personally. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. It's not a fictional story that's just got kind of a mildly good spiritual meaning to it. It's not an allegory. It's not like the unverifiable experience of Joseph Smith. It's not like the mythical spiritual energy touted in New Age belief and New Age religion. It's not a theory. The second coming is verified and testified by eyewitness account. But you'll say, how can they witness his second coming? They haven't witnessed it yet. What Peter's saying is that their eyewitness is based on Jesus' transfiguration. Their eyewitness account confirming his second coming is his coming on the mountain where his glory was revealed. It's what we spoke of last week. Peter, James, and John all went with Jesus onto a holy mountain uh, where Jesus' glory radiated so brilliantly, so brightly, so radiatingly, and a divine voice from a cloud, the Father, as Peter says here, the majestic glory, spoke confirming that this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' glory shined radiantly, and he was confirmed, he was affirmed by the Father that he was the beloved Son, and he had all authority to speak. Peter refers to this event as grounds. He refers to this event as testifying to the future coming of the Messiah, the future coming of Jesus, his powerful second coming. But why didn't he point to Jesus' clear teaching, right? If you read the Gospels, it's clear over and over again. Jesus says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. So why does he look to the transfiguration? Well, Peter sees the transfiguration as anticipating the powerful second coming. He interprets the transfiguration as a glimpse of the coming kingdom and a picture of Jesus' glory when he returns in full. Peter's saying, we saw enough glory to know that this is the real deal. We saw enough glory to confirm that Jesus is going to come in fullness of glory. All of, the, all of the transfiguration accounts and the synoptic gospels come right on the heels of Jesus proclaiming and prophesying the coming kingdom of God. That's not just going to come, but it's going to come in power. And, and Peter interprets the transfiguration in light of that and saying, this is a testimony, this is a testimony that his kingdom's coming in fullness. His kingdom's coming in power. The transfiguration is the basis or the anticipating sign of Jesus' second coming. He's going to come in the same way. He's going to come in glory 
in honor and in power. So we should look at that and we should have confidence in our historical faith. We don't believe myth or as one one coworker would accuse us, we, we believe in a divine fairy tale. Like all that Christianity is, is just like a children's book to encourage people to live right. That's false. We don't believe in a divine fairy tale. We believe in a historical salvation. We believe in a historical Jesus who lived, who died, who rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and his second coming is as guaranteed as those historical events. His second coming is, is as guaranteed as everything he's already established. If he's established it in the hearts of men, he's good and faithful and powerful to bring it to completion by returning to bring salvation and judgment. His coming will bring salvation and judgment. Believe. Believe that it's historical. Believe that we can confirm it. Believe the eyewitness testimony. It's not just enough to say, oh, it's a historical thing. I know many people who have said, yeah, I believe Jesus was a historical person. He was just crazy. Or people who say, I believe Jesus was a historically good teacher, historically good prophet. It's not enough to believe that history is true. You must believe what history is telling us. You must believe the events. You must believe the person in history. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus who historically came and historically died for the salvation of sinners. And he will come again to bring that to fullness. You must believe in Jesus and his glory if you're actually going to know God, not just know about God. So the second witness, the first witness is their eyewitness testimony. And the second witness is the prophetic word. We see that in verse 19. In verse 19, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, at first glance, it might seem like Peter is, is pitting the prophetic word against his eyewitness experience. Uh, I'll confess that that's largely how I've always approached this passage, uh, as if the Old Testament scriptures or the scriptures in general are more reliable than their experience of this glory. This is how the New International Version, the Christian Standard Bible, would interpret this, interpret and translate this, this verse. They would say something to the extent of, we also have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, as in like also is the prophetic word is, is also there just like the eyewitness account was, but they're different. They're contrasted with each other, as if saying that the scriptures are more reliable than Jesus' transfiguration, as if the scriptures should be held with more weight than the apostles' testimony. I don't think that that's how we should interpret this passage, though. If, we're, if he were trying to make a contrast between the scriptures and experience, he'd be downplaying the transfiguration. He'd be downplaying the thing he just said is a reason we should believe the second coming. It suggests that the, the transfiguration were insignificant, insufficient to testify to Jesus' powerful coming. It's not enough. They would need something else other than what they saw. It would appear that the transfiguration were less reliable and needs to take a back seat to prophecy. Instead, I think what Peter is trying to say is that the Old Testament prophecies, the, the scriptures that Peter had, the Old Testament, the prophecies were to point forward to the glory and power and honor of the coming of Jesus. And Peter is saying, the transfiguration confirms those prophecies, right? So the Old Testament prophesied of the coming day of the Lord, and this coming day would bring salvation and judgment. The apostles' interpretation of the transfiguration, so the way that they view the transfiguration, the way they interpret it, provides the right lens by which we should see the Old Testament. 
we should see Peter saying the prophetic word is more certain, more confirmed, more reliable because of the transfiguration, not in spite of it. It's more certain because they observed what it pointed to. They observed that the transfiguration was a glimpse of Jesus' powerful coming. The apostles' interpretation of the Old Testament in light of Christ certifies its claims. Like a certified stamp on a package, their interpretation certifies the Old Testament prophecies. So that's exactly what the apostles are doing in the rest of the New Testament. Right? They are interpreting the Old Testament in light of the person and the work of Christ. But they don't do it just as men. And we'll see later that they do it being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as they write to New Testament churches, they're inspired to communicate the fully authoritative word of God. So we can say there's a dual authorship to Scripture. We can say that there's a, there are human authors and there's the divine author. The human author is being carried along or inspired or taught by the Holy Spirit. Uh, answer to a catechism, who wrote the Bible? Holy men taught by the Holy Spirit. They each, the human, the human authors, because even though they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean that they're just puppets, right? So we can, we can have confidence that we have a divine author and a human author. And the divine author doesn't just like turn the human into a puppet where he just says whatever he wants. But all the human authors maintain their own personality, their own experiences, their own vocabulary, their own knowledge, their own style. And in their individuality, the Holy Spirit inspires them and they interpret all things in light of Jesus and his work. So as the apostles interpret the prophetic word, they confirm that the second coming is certain. The second coming's reliable. It's as certain as his first coming. It's as certain as his resurrection. It's as certain as the breakfast you ate. It's as certain as the shoes you're wearing. It's certain. It's coming. It's a reality. And you must reconcile with it. You must reconcile. This is a reality. Like Peter's saying, Peter's saying, bank on it. It's a reality. It's coming. How should we live? What should this do in us? Well, that's why Peter is using this as a grounds for his main point. Peter's using this as a grounds. So the grounding is the second coming of Jesus is certain. It's certain because of the apostles' testimony, and it's a certain because of the prophetic word. So now what does he call us to do in light of it? That's his main point here. So point two is his main clause. The main clause is this. Pay attention to the word. Pay attention. Remember Peter's context here. He writes in the time between Jesus' glory revealed in part and and Jesus' glory revealed in full in the second coming. He writes to these people in the in-between time, what the New Testament calls the last days. They're filled with persecution. They're filled with false teaching. They're filled with trials of many kinds to which we all can attest to. We've all experienced these things. Peter's flock is facing the false teaching of the second coming. And this is exactly what Jesus was prophesying in Matthew 24. Jesus is saying that in the last days, there's going to be false prophets arising and they're going to lead many astray and lawlessness will be increased. Love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Beloved, we live in the same time as Peter's audience. We live in the same time of of false teachers We live in the same time of suffering. We live in the same time where we lose loved ones, church members, brothers we've spent time praying with. We live in this last days. False teachers can gain easy platforms on social media to spread their poison, telling us live your best life now. 
teaching that there's no real consequences for sin. Jesus is a means to an end. We live in the last days where we're barraged by the temptations of the flesh. Temptations to think, what's, what's one more look? Like I'm going to delete the app and I just won't do it again. Temptations to, to speak a harsh word to your spouse or your parent after you've had a long day and, and you're just annoyed by the sight of them. Temptation to retreat in despair when you just bombed the presentation at work. Temptation to avoid others because they're different than us, because we just don't like them, because uh, they're annoying, because any other reason. Our flesh is at war within us. In the last days, we're affected not just by false teachers, not just by our own temptation, but we're affected by sin. Not just our own sin, but the sins of others. We're affected by the unbelief of a family member. Parents are, are affected by your children's disobedience. Parent, children, you're affected by your parents' sin, their anger, their harshness, their quarrelsomeness. Husbands and wives divided because of unrepentant sin. There's real suffering in our body. There really is suffering. It's not just a not, it's just not, it's not just a cliche that we say to like act real. There's real suffering. There's real hardship that we all experience and that life is difficult is like the biggest understatement of this life. Like it's it it really is. We're plagued by this stuff. All of it's enough to drive someone to despair and throw their hands up and say, what's the purpose of it all? What's the purpose? Why, do, why this difficulty? How do, I, how do I not just lose my mind with this difficulty? Peter's medicine for you. Peter's medicine is pay attention to the word. Right? Pay attention to God's word. Pay attention to the word if you are going to endure. This is, this is the whole message of Second of Peter, right? Everything up to this point is getting here. All of chapter one is getting to this point. False teachers are around. You're in the last days. People want to lead you astray. Pay attention to God's word. Pay attention. We have a tendency to run everywhere else avoidance is like our closest friend when life's difficult like I'm really sad I'm just going to listen to some like dark music that's going to just feed my emotions feed my depression this day has been awful physically emotionally mentally and I'm just going to go home and like eat like drink to drown my sorrow or maybe, I, maybe I'm just depressed and I'm just going to like eat ice cream because that's going to make me feel better. Maybe, maybe you just like want to go home and watch a sappy movie. Maybe that'll make you feel better. We want to run to things to avoid our pain. But, but if, if your coping mechanism of choice is not avoidance, maybe it's, maybe it's aggression. Maybe you cope by grasping for control. Things feel like they're just slipping through my hands, so grasp tighter. These kids won't listen, so speak louder. My wife doesn't submit, demand respect. We are prone. We're prone to run everywhere else when things are difficult. But Peter tells us, endure by running to the word. Endure by paying attention to the word, by giving heed to the word. Peter gives us three qualifiers. He qualifies this, this call, pay attention to the word. He qualifies it in three ways, right? So he helps us understand it. When I say qualifies, he gives it some more handles, something to grasp on. What do you mean, Peter? How do I do this? Well, the first is to pay attention to it as a lamp, to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place, right? We've already detailed, we live in a dark place. You don't have to look. You don't have to look far. The world's full of sin. The darkest place, though, is the darkness of the human heart, right? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 
It says, the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? It takes no imagination. Right? We've seen, we've seen seemingly innocent children spout off the mouth some wicked thing. Darkness is, is in the heart. And that's the first problem we must reconcile with. His word shines in the dark place of the human heart. Jesus says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So just like on Mount Sinai, God's glory shined on Moses and his face radiated and shined. In the same way, we will be transformed by the light of the world as we look to him, as he gives us light. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, that God has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Jesus shines brightly into the dark hearts of men. Jesus shines brightly to transform us. So we must first, before we see God's word as a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, before we see God's commandments as enlightening our eyes, before you see those things, you must have God's light shining on your heart. You must see that Jesus is the light of the world and believe in him. You must be saved. You must have a new heart if you're going to have any power to obey his commands. You must have new life if you're going to see life in his word. We should pay attention. We should pay attention to God's word because in his word we find life. If you're here today, Jesus, in John chapter 1, Jesus is called the word that was made flesh. And this word came into the darkness to shine light of the gospel and light of eternal life on any who believe in him. Believe that Jesus is the light of the world. Be saved. Be empowered to walk in the light. See his word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. See his word as enlightening your eyes. See his word giving you his purpose, his will, and his desire for your life. His word is there for us. His word is there as an instrument to bring about godliness. His word is there as an instrument to bring light in our life. So walking in the light of Christ doesn't just mean doing the right things. Right? I heard a podcast and someone said, yeah, even unbelievers can put off deeds of the flesh. Right? Even unbelievers can stop looking at pornography. Even unbelievers can stop running to alcohol. Walking in the light is not just stopping doing things. It's starting to live in the light of Jesus' righteousness. To live in light of grace that Jesus provides so that if you sin, you don't flounder. If you sin, you have a confident hope in our risen Lord. Walking in the light of, of Jesus' grace, walking in Jesus' light, it's not just putting off, but it's putting on. So, so we're called pay attention, not just to pay attention, but pay attention to his word. Pay attention to his word with a heart that's enlightened by Jesus. And if you do that, his word will bear fruit in you, right? So when you're tempted to anger, go to the scriptures. Go to the scriptures and see that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, James 1, 20. Husbands, look to the scriptures when you're trying to figure out how to lead your wife. Newly married guys, guys that have been married for 30 years. Go to the scriptures, see that Jesus is our example of husbanding. Ephesians 5. Ladies, don't think too highly of yourself. Strive to be like the woman in Titus 2. Right? The scriptures instruct the way we lead our families, the way we pursue purity, the way we seek to love people who are different than us. Right? The light of Christ instructs us to love God with all of our heart, 
and to love our neighbor as ourself. We must live in light of that. God's word is a lamp shining in a dark place, but the light doesn't just inform our actions, right? The light informs our knowledge. We don't want to be imbalanced Christians with extra large hearts and really tiny brains and vice versa. We should love truth. Remember, Peter's telling us to pay attention to truth in light of false teaching. He's encouraging his people Hold on to the realities of the gospel firmly. Don't let them slip. So we should know truth. We should know doctrine. We need, we need to know, though, the things that we need to hold firmly. Right? We need to hold firmly the gospel, the realities of Christ. So it really is okay to disagree. It doesn't, doesn't feel like it in a culture that says, if you disagree, just leave. If you and your wife don't agree, just like, you know, separate or tell her it's, you know, it's her decision and not yours. No, like we, we, we as Christians don't run away from our problems. It's okay to disagree about doctrine like eschatology. It's okay to disagree about covenant theology. It's okay to disagree about your age, you know, how old you feel like the earth is. It's okay to disagree on, on spiritual gifts. It's okay to disagree on how we do things in church. Like, it's okay to disagree on these things as long as they don't compromise the gospel. Don't compromise the gospel. We should not disagree on the gospel. If there's one thing that unites us, it is the thing that unites us so that we can disagree about any of these other things. If we agree on the gospel, oh, brothers and sisters, we'll have great unity. Know the one thing for certain. Know the gospel Hold the gospel firmly. All of these other things just hold with like an open hand. I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead to guarantee my new life with him. And he's coming back to finish what he started. So I am going to trust in him. I'm going to live for him. Hold that firmly. Be ready to give an answer for the hope you have when you're when you're evangelizing, when you're sharing the gospel. The other qualifier he gives is that we should pay attention to it until the coming of Christ. Peter says that until this, pay attention, verse 19, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. The scriptures are given for God's people to strengthen us in the knowledge and love of God in light of the gospel. But there's no need for prophecy when Jesus comes back. Prophecy, 1 Corinthians 13, allows us to know in part. But when Jesus comes back and we see in full, we're not going to need the prophetic word anymore because we're going to have what the prophetic word points to. We're going to have Jesus. We're going to have life. We should be careful then, knowing that the scriptures are temporary, not to worship the Bible, not to judge our spiritual maturity, our Christianity, by how much of the Bible we know, how much doctrine we know, how your Bible reading plan is going. Our maturity is not gauged by these things. They inform our maturity. They guide and instruct our maturity, but our maturity is not marked by these things. Our maturity and relationship with the Lord are are marked by how well we align our lives to him. Are you aligning your life to the Lord of light? Are you doing this? Are you pursuing the qualities, the virtues that Peter lists out at the beginning of of this letter? In verses five to seven, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Those are, those are the fruit that mark our spiritual maturity. And this is what the scriptures are to produce in us. Why? Because these, the, these are the qualities that are gonna be in us in eternity. The scriptures are to produce in us now what we will be like in eternity. The scriptures are to conform us into the image of Jesus. The scriptures are to to make us like Jesus in our lives here and now. 
in anticipation for our glory with him to come. So what now? Well, like even though it's temporary, read the Bible. Take it in, soak it up, listen to podcasts, listen to the Bible, talk about the Bible in your small groups, talk about the Bible in your marriage, read the Bible with your family, go through the Bible in family worship. That's a novel idea. We need to be reading the Bible. We need to be in the Bible. Beholding God's glory through his word will transform us into his image and help us endure until his coming. So pay attention to it, sister. Brothers, give heed to it as you wait the coming of our Lord Jesus to endure difficulty. When you're struggling with an issue in your life, maybe it's a harsh tongue, maybe it's, maybe it's fear of sharing the gospel, maybe it's some, some other issue, find a scripture, find a promise in the Bible and hold tightly onto it Try to live by faith in light of God's promises. If you're suffering this morning, hear this promise. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Suffering in this life, preparing glory for us later. So don't lose heart. Do not lose heart. Set your eyes on the Lord above who will work life in you. Promises like Romans 8, 15 are yours. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into sin and to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So fight all the temptation to go back to the old habits. You don't have that spirit of slavery You have the spirit of sonship, so live as a blood-bought son or daughter. Live in light of God's promises. We should take Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 to heart. We should heed it, where it says, let us lay aside every weight and, and sin which clings so closely. Lay it aside, but don't just lay it aside. Let us run with endurance that's before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Put off anything unhelpful, anything that's in your way. New car parts, different home, TV shows, the sports game, anything that gets in your way. Sin, don't fall back into sin, but strive forward, looking to Jesus, our older brother, whom we will be conformed into his image. We will be transformed to be like Jesus in glory. But it's not just our striving that will accomplish this. No, it's the power of the prophetic word. The third quality Peter tells us here this morning is that the prophetic word is not just the words of man. No, but it's God's word. That's what we see in verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. We talked about this earlier. There are two authors of Scripture, and we could go into far greater detail about this another time. There's a human and divine author, and this text confirms that. The apostles' interpretation of the events are not lessened by them being men right? It's not insignificant. Rather, their interpretations, their scriptures, their writings should be seen as authoritative because they've been inspired by the Spirit. So we're not just following some guy's words, right? This is not just a self-help book. You don't just come to the Bible to like get your life in order. You don't change yourself. There's no power in the seven habits of highly effective people because men cannot produce change in men's hearts. We can't, change our, we can't change our own hearts. You can't change other people's hearts. Your children's hearts, your spouse's hearts, your friend's hearts, your family's hearts, you can't change them. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. 
He turns it where he will. Every man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs his heart. The Lord alone has power to transform dead sinners into the image of his son. He does that by the Holy Spirit. Your only hope for godliness, your only hope for godly living, for enduring, for putting aside pesky sins that have been sticking around for a while, your only hope of laying aside weights that get in your way, your only hope of transformation is that God would do this in you. His word is sufficient to do this. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. God has promised that he will send his word out and his word will not return void. But it will accomplish everything he sets out to do with it. He's promised that he will work all things together for good to those who love him. And what does that mean in Romans 8? It means that we'll look like Jesus. Romans 8, 29. That we would be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God's power in his word, by his spirit, is our only hope of these things. We have the prophetic word. We have this word. We have the scriptures. They've been confirmed by the apostles' witness. We have these scriptures as a lamp shining in a dark place. We have these scriptures to guide us in the knowledge and truth until we experience the knowledge and truth in fullness. So we should be very careful to pay attention to it. When you behold the glory of Jesus through the words of the Spirit, you'll be transformed into the image of Jesus by the work of the Spirit. So let's resolve together to pay attention to this word as we run with endurance because God's the one at work within us to will and work for his good pleasure and he has promised that he will do this. Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?